This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, June 29th, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. A law criminalizing some speech encouraging people to violate immigration law passes Supreme Court muster, sorta, and many questions about the interpretation of that law have been left unanswered, in part thanks to the High Court's reliance on so-called constitutional avoidance. Cato's Tommy Berry comments on the High Court ruling. Tommy, we've discussed this case before, but if you don't mind, sort of recapitulate the issue at hand. Sure. The issue is a federal statute that criminally prohibits speech that encourages or induces any violation of immigration law, uh, either knowing or in reckless disregard that it will lead to that violation of immigration law. And essentially the dispute in this case is, is that statute so broad, does it apply to so much First Amendment protected speech that it violates the so-called facial overbreath doctrine, which means you have to strike down the law entirely under the First Amendment, even if the particular defendant at issue in the case uh, did not engage in protected speech. So the defendant in this case, there's no dispute that he himself did conduct that's a crime. He did pretty egregious fraud, lied to people about how they could become citizens when in fact they couldn't for money. But his argument was that in many other cases, this language could, for example, prohibit an op-ed in a newspaper uh, encouraging people in the country illegally to stay, or a popular YouTuber sort of rallying the non-documented alien community and things like that. Whereas the government on the other side said, no, these are terms of art, even though it says encourages or induces, you can just read those as if they say solicits or facilitates, which are terms of art in criminal law that have a much narrower meaning intentionally helping someone, a particular person, commit a particular crime. So the government's argument then here is don't read these words as they are written, read these words more narrowly than the way they are written. Correct. And the government relied heavily on a so-called the doctrine of so-called constitutional avoidance, meaning if it's closer, if it could go either way. Courts have said we have an obligation to read it in the way that does not violate the Constitution on the one hand, uh, partially justified on the theory that Congress doesn't intend to violate the Constitution. I think that's questionable just as a as a factual matter. But then also on the theory that, you know, even if it's a close call and they're not sure what Congress intended, it's best to harmonize statute law with constitutional law and better to find some interpretation that allows the statute to stay on the books. Now, when we discussed this case before, it seemed that this court was a very stringent defender of the First Amendment and and read a very broad view of what constitutes First Amendment protected speech. What did the court say here? Well, in this case, the court completely bought the government's argument and they bought the narrow interpretation of the law. They said, despite the fact that they did not, the statute does not use solicit or facilitate, and despite the fact that it was even amended several decades ago to take out words like facilitate and solicit, leaving only these broader words in, despite both of those facts, they said, we're still going to read this as having its narrow criminal law context. The court heavily relied on the particular statutes it, it's in. They said when, when words appear in a criminal law statute, we presume them to have their criminal law meaning. They said at one point, you have to interpret words based on the water in which it's swimming, in this case, a criminal law statute water. And then they they accepted the government's constitutional avoidance canon as well, saying that we have to interpret this to avoid, to harmonize rather than to create a collision. 
So the court acknowledged, completely acknowledged that if it applied to op-eds, speeches, et cetera, it would be likely unconstitutional. They just said it doesn't apply to those. So this is sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. That is to say, the court has read the law in a certain way. And from here on out, won't that statute be read that way? It will. And that is the silver lining. And we shouldn't overlook that fact that we now have a definitive interpretation from the Supreme Court saying, no, you can't use this to prosecute someone giving a public speech. You can't use this to prosecute someone writing a pro-immigration op-ed in the newspaper or doing policy work. We, in our amicus brief for the Cato Institute, we noted that we have scholars here who talk about the problems with the immigration system and arguably speak in the abstract in an encouraging manner for people to potentially commit violations of immigration law. So that is now clearly not under the reach of the statute. At the very at the very minimum, the speech has to target a particular person, not just the public in the abstract. But there are still serious unanswered questions that I'm really surprised the court didn't answer. The biggest one is that many violations of immigration law are simply civil violations, in particular staying past a visa, for example. And the court acknowledged that they've never upheld a criminal prohibition on speech facilitating mere civil violations. So they said, you know, that might be a mismatch, that might not be constitutional, but we're not going to answer that. The only way to answer that is to raise it as a defense in a future prosecution. So that leaves a very big unanswered question about whether this law can be constitutionally applied in that context. So the court bought the government's argument, essentially. Small silver lining is we have some clarity about what the law will mean going forward, but big picture, the court seems to have done its best to avoid the some difficult questions about this issue. Is that fair? That's definitely fair. And in the dissent, Justice Jackson pointed out that the government really got to have its cake and eat it too throughout the course of this this prosecution. At an earlier stage, they objected vociferously to any jury instruction claiming that there is an intent requirement. And yet now we've gotten up to the Supreme Court, as Justice Jackson said, now that the government's on its back foot and has to defend the law from being completely struck down, they totally accept, oh yes, this has this narrow criminal law meaning that includes an intent requirement. So the problem, in my view, the big problem with constitutional avoidance is this statute has been on the books for decades when people didn't have the benefit of a definitive interpretation. And of course, being risk averse, people are not going to come anywhere close to what might involve jail time. And of course, people would rationally read it in its broadest possible sense. So constitutional avoidance basically allows the government to write a broad law, scare people with it, benefit from that uncertainty, and then finally get the narrowing construction once someone challenges it under overbreath to allow it to continue. After most of those members of Congress has long retired. Yes. Does this case tee up a bunch of future cases that have related implications? I think it certainly tees up the civil versus criminal violation issue. The problem, though, is that it can only now be raised as a defense in a criminal prosecution. And of course, no one is rationally going to bring a test case where if they guess wrong, the, the penalty is jail. So that's the issue. That's why overbreadth doctrine is such an important medicine and such an important recourse, because it essentially allows a definitive interpretation to be made without people committing a crime to essentially raise a test case. So now, unfortunately, I think it's not clear 
when we're going to get a case that would raise this issue. It would have to be, the government would have to bring a prosecution of someone for soliciting or facilitating a mere civil violation, like the hypothetical grandma telling her son whose visa is expiring, I really want you to stay and take care of me. My heart will be broken if you leave the country. But, you know, plausibly, the government's probably not going to bring those prosecutions to avoid setting up that possible test case. So you, you have, again, they have the benefit of the law on the books scaring people, but no definitive prosecution means no, no ability to challenge it. Tommy Berry is editor of the Cato Institute's annual Supreme Court Review. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.